Hello, world. What is up? Welcome back to the Feelings Lab. I'm your host, Matt Forte. And for today's episode, we're talking about empathy and augmented reality. This year marks the seventh episode of season two, which measured in podcast years puts us somewhere between infant and slightly larger infant. Uh, But still, it's deep enough in that certain patterns and reoccurring themes are presenting themselves more and more, which led to today's topic. Uh, Be it the digital people at sew machines or uh, Moxie, the companion robot for children or the secret sauce behind Talkify that makes them so good at matching potential mates for all the fun tangents that our conversations about these unique cutting edge AI driven technologies take us on. We always seem to at some point arrive at the significance of the human element. Um, for the, for those listening, I did air quotes around the human element. Uh, so anyway, the human element, right? That, that, that intangible thing that AI is getting better at, but still can't quite replicate. And when we break down that borderline mystical phrase, we find a big part of what we're really talking about is empathy. Uh, empathy comes up a lot, as it should. Uh, after all, we are a podcast about emotions. So what could be more important than the ability to sense others' emotions and imagine what someone else might be feeling or experiencing, right? So if it's so important, Why haven't we created a perfectly empathic AI yet? What is it about that human element that is so significant in all of these totally different scenarios? Why are some people more empathetic than others? Uh, Can you learn to be more empathetic? And if so, is that something you can only learn from other humans or can a machine teach you? Uh, We wanted to dig deeper into some of these ideas and explore a bit further, which sets the stage for our guest perfectly. I'll bring him in in just a second. But first, Alan, I have to start with a heartfelt congratulations to you and the entire Hume AI team. You are literally, sir, just off the plane back from Austin, Texas, where you gave a huge presentation as part of uh, South by Southwest's 14th annual pitch event. And you guys came back with some hardware. Uh, You won best in artificial intelligence, robotics, and voice. What an awesome achievement. What an incredible experience. I'm sure. Can you sum it up in 30 seconds or less? Oh man, <laughs> it was it was surreal. I mean, it was like a Shark Tank in front of 500 people, 300 people. I don't know, um, multiple hundreds of people in the audience. I heard it was hundreds uh, of thousands. <laughs> is what I heard. Those are the numbers I'm getting. Yeah. That, uh, we were in the AI robotics and voice category, where you know, there had been thousands of applicants who submitted video pitches. Um, so every single one of the top five finalists was super impressive. Um, actually, three of them were pretty empathic related. One uh, was a digital avatar company. Uh, that was sort of like soul machines, um, but more cartoony. Um, and there's a lot of room for that. Yeah. Uh, and one was a really cool company that was you would love that was labeling um, cat facial expressions uh, so that you could track your past wealthy. Actually, really I, promising. Uh, it's amazing. I'm, I, I mean, I'm a dog person, but an animal person overall. So cat facial, look at it. I, I want to know more about it. I will know more about it. It's only a matter of time. Uh, we should do a whole bonus episode of the show where you just get to break down that whole trip for me, man. I'm sure it's amazing. We'll, we'll see if that's something the listeners want. Maybe we'll make that happen. So congratulations again. So excited. I just wanted to bring that up. So proud. And I look forward to seeing uh, what other amazing opportunities this brings forward, man. Hey, speaking of amazing opportunities, I'm feeling really lucky today to have the chance to chat with our guests. Uh, They are an entrepreneur, researcher, and technology enthusiast with a vision to revolutionize virtual reality training content and adoption rates. Uh, In 2015, they co-founded Immersion, 
What began as an educational technology venture built upon years of their academic research has since evolved into a virtual reality training platform designed to help unlock human potential. Uh, Immersion uses avatars powered by human reasoning and artificial intelligence to help professionals develop and enhance the essential skills required to be productive, effective, and generally just more successful in high stakes careers. Uh, Please welcome to the show the co-founder and CTO of Immersion. It's so cool to have you here. Arjun Nagandran is with us. Arjun, thank you so much for being here, sir. How are you doing? Fantastic. Uh, wow, this is amazing. This is one of the funnest topics that, um, you know, we're going to have a lot of um, fun talking about. I, uh, Alan, thanks again for the opportunity. And Matt, again, thanks for having me on the show. Ah, please don't mention it, man. We're, we're stoked <laughs> to have you here. Thank you for, for making the time in your schedule and, and coming and hanging out. Uh, all right, let's, let's start where most people tend to start at the beginning. Take me back, Arden, to 2015, man. I just want to get a little bit of context for everybody listening at home. I want to talk about the early days of Merge and briefly how it all began, the inspiration behind the original idea, and, and just sort of how it's grown over the past seven or so years. Uh, just like Alan, 30 seconds, go. I'm kidding. I'm yeah, kidding. awesome. Yeah, um, no, so... Um, <laughs> the- <laughs> Um, before, uh, Mergen launched, um, I spent a lot of time in academia. I have a background in robotics and, mm-hmm. um, you know, we, back in my postdoc days and also as an, as a research professor, we were trying to seamlessly blend the boundaries between robotics, virtual reality and artificial intelligence. And mm-hmm. we, um, you know, we had this great opportunity where we had to work with, you know, the United States Navy around, um, training Marines on cross-cultural skills. And it was this idea that, you know, you go into Afghanistan, you've got things that you've got to deal with there that are, you know, cultural norms. We don't quite understand them. How do you train for this when there's people from different cultures and different backgrounds and ultimately you all want to achieve, you know, the, the same sort of goal. And one of the things we did back in the day was combine the technology that we have now, which really forms the core IP of Mersion, to drive robots that were located really far away with uh, you know projections on the faces of the robots or think of these as animatronic devices and mm-hmm. the animatronic devices will basically you know have the culturally appropriate gestures and norms in order to interact with these marines so it would give them that physical presence of being an animatronic that was kind of real but at the same time a human controlling it from you know miles and miles away would add that layer of nuance around you know, the sorts of language or the sorts of, you know, things that you would say that would pose resistance to the Marine. And so, of course, we we developed that. We used the technology in education and teaching to try and train teachers around the classrooms. They were uh, researchers in the School of Education that were using this platform. And, you know, over the course of about five years, we built a lot of the core IP back then. And we almost had like 20 or 30 people all, already using the system in a research capacity that kind of gave us a lot of confidence that this is something we could actually take from the lab into the real world. And it was that kind of what prompted uh, Mark, who's my co-founder, and I to launch Mersion in 2015. And um, we, of course, immediately uh, launched into you know the customer service space and you know the rest of the sales history. Wow. Absolutely amazing, man. I uh, just, I, uh, as I've mentioned on other podcasts before, I'm kind of a theme park nut. And so I know a lot about uh, like Disney's history with animatronics and the first animatronics and just the amount of work and effort that goes into programming and animating a, a lifelike cycle for those robots. And the idea of being able to create a system that can sort of 
uh, pull all of that just from uh, a human performance from Miles. It's a very cool, crazy idea uh, that blows my mind. And, and I want to unpack and talk more about as we go on. Uh, we're going to come back. There's a million things I have follow-ups for in that story. But uh, Alan, uh, dumb question. Why is empathy so important again? Uh, as I recall, part of Hume's mission statement is like a future with more empathic AI. What, so what, why is it important that we steer technology in that direction? Pretend I know nothing. <laughs> Pretend. Well, I mean, the, the, the core thing that empathy does is it makes us understand each other and what we're feeling, right? So I understand what you're feeling. I understand a little bit about what Arjun is feeling just from, you know, what, what you're saying, how, how your face is moving, from your vocal inflections. And this is just this magical ability. And for most people, it means that I care about your well-being and I'm kind of calibrating my behaviors to make sure they have positive effects on you, right? Mm -hmm. um, and the, the whole goal is uh, to make sure that empathy is invoked as much as possible when you're dealing with you know, uh, people who are facing hardship. And there's lots of hardship going on in this world. Um, there's those quotes about people being reduced to statistics. That means that you're, you understand what's happening, but you don't empathize. Um, and you don't, as a result, have the instinct to make a decision that's going to have a positive effect on those people. So um, really critical ability and really critical to extend to our interactions that uh, occur over digital platforms, for example, where we might otherwise not have all the signals that we require yeah. in order to make empathic decisions. We might not have somebody's face in front of us or we might not hear their actual vocal inflections. Really important to restore empathy to those situations. And of course, our goal is to restore empathy to situations where AI is making decisions on behalf of a human, and it may not otherwise have access to those really important indicators to tell, tell it how it can make decisions that are positive for you. Right. It, this is um, kind of open for everybody here. Why, why is it that, why do we keep running into this idea that, uh, that we still need to incorporate some level of human input? Not, not that I'm trying to push anyone out of a job, but why are so many companies finding right now the best solutions seem to be this hybrid model of humans and AI working in tandem? I mean, the concern is really that the AI doesn't have empathy, right? And you're, you're optimizing the AI for some objective and it has some input, it has some output, but it might not be considering something. Um, it might not be considering how people actually feel in the way that humans would. Um, and, you know, and, and so it makes sense in lieu of empathic AI to make sure that there's always a human in the loop. Of course, there is a, there are humans have biases, right? Sometimes you want to take the human out of the loop, but ultimately the, the best solution may be an empathic AI without a human. Yeah. Arjun, did you yeah. guys know from the beginning that it was going to be hybrid or did you try it first to go strict uh, uh, machine learning, AI driven? And then you were like, we, we need people here. How, what was that journey like? Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, you know, the 10 years back, my answer to that question would have been very different from it is now. So, Interesting. you know, 10 years back, um, you know, you're in the thick of trying to develop the most automated system you possibly can. And you're younger, you're kind of like fascinated by technology and you really are doing technology for the sake of technology. And over time, you start to interact with people and you start to realize Technology really should be an augmenter of human capabilities, which is mm -hmm. we're, we're really good at what we do. We want to use technology in cases where we're not as good as the technology is and where we can improve. We use technology to augment our existing skills. And um, over time, you know, it's, it's one of those things that taught me that conversational AI is in that realm of, you know, it, there's been progress on it since the 1960s, right? And 
it's that's a long period of time given the advancements in technology in every other aspect whereas conversational ai doesn't get there and then you start to question what is it about conversational ai that makes it so hard and the more you think about this you start thinking about things like context and the other day i was driving down my road um and 25 mile per hour zone right and i saw two elderly gentlemen standing on the road and uh, out of the con i i kind of looked at them they were off to the side and i immediately saw them stop talking and turn around and glance you know 50 meters ahead and that was a cue for me to say they are concerned about something that's 50 meters ahead of them and mm-hmm. what could it possibly be and i couldn't see my line of sight was around a curved road and sure enough i drive another 25 meters and there's these two 3 year old kids on a bicycle and they're in the middle of the road and they're playing it's a quiet street the grandparents are out there supervising the kids if you think about you know relying on ai and sensors there is no contextual information for those sensors to say there are two old people on the road looking at two kids and they're afraid for their safety which means that that self driving car isn't breaking right there hmm. it's breaking at a point that's much further on when the actual sensor is seeing those kids and it immediately dawned on me like this is exactly the kind of thing that we as humans possess which is this extension or this contextual thinking and that contextual thinking goes years right it's yeah. It's yeah. everything you learned when you were a kid that, you know, all of a sudden is like it jogs your memory, you trigger a part of your brain, you've locked that away, it's in cold storage and it comes rushing back. And unless AI and other systems are able even if they are to do something like that, relying on them to make the kinds of decisions that humans are making in, in the real world is in my opinion a mistake. Yeah. Yeah, when you think about just like how you first of all the the amount of sensors and then the 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 sort of data bank you would need to reference that information for that machine to then know these old there's there's just so much it feels like something that will happen someday but it's definitely well out of the scope of what I can process and like how you would build that logic tree to get you there to know to do that um yeah. When you talk about uh, augmenting, uh, I'm so happy to hear you use that word. One of the things I wanted to kind of figure out since it's in the title of today's episode is sort of how people consider or define augmented reality. For me, the simplest term, of course, I think of like Google Glass or HoloLens or like an overlay over something. I know Apple's been doing a lot with uh iOS and building AR backbones into there and you look through your phone and like you can walk around an environment or see a little character dancing on your desk. That's augmented reality to me. When you talk about augmented reality, reality you know how do you think of it arjun how do you define it is it is it just like that an overlay or is it more of like a suite uh, of services and things all i'm i'm very curious to your your perspective on that of what augmented reality is to you yeah and uh, you know and the, the, there is some um debate about the terms now only because technologies are maturing so much that there's this yeah. you know cross boundaries between these different the way i really want to think about this is there's a term called xr or cross reality or extended reality which really com- encompasses the boundaries of you know the different kinds of things you can do so there's virtual reality there's augmented reality there's mixed reality and then that spectrum if you think about it is kind of under this umbrella in the traditional definition definition of you know extended reality or xr or cross reality mm-hmm. um information augmentation on the other hand is very different right it's yeah. um uh, it, it by by definition augmented reality needs a point in the real world to be tracked using a okay. computer vision algorithm 
And then somehow that registered point in the real world doesn't really move in space and you're able to overlay information on it, right? Which is your traditional definition of augmented reality. Now, that's very different from, um, you know, the kinds of augmentation that we're thinking about now, which is, mm -hmm. can we use technology to augment humans thinking, right? Yeah. And um, that is providing... Um, timely information, almost on-demand information to the people that are needing that information. And that's kind of how I imagine augmentation, um, especially from a technological standpoint. It's, I am doing a task. I don't need to register a specific portion in my world in which I need that information displayed. I just contextually and in that particular moment in time require that information and the technology is able to provide that information to me in order to make help me make a better decision than I already would have. Love it. Um, no. So, um, Alan, I'll defer to you on other kind of like lines of thinking around this. And I want to be sensitive to not, you know, redefine terms that have already been defined over, you know, 30, 40 years. So augmented reality is still augmented reality. And um, it's a podcast. Yeah. Yeah. There's no rules out here. You can redefine. Go back. Yeah. Yeah. All right. yeah. so, <laughs> but I appreciate the sensitivity. <laughs> Alan, yeah, let me hear your thoughts because I do uh, I, I do want to pivot from here in a second over to some stuff uh, specific to immersion. But what do, what do you think about that, man? Yeah, I mean, so I, I'm 100% in agreement. I think it's about what we're perceiving. I mean, reality is sort of a misnomer because like it's always reality, whether it's augmented to be virtual or whatever. Mm -hmm. I mean, <laughs> you're, 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 it's what you're sensing, um, what yeah. is coming into your eyes, what are you hearing? Um, <laughs> and that allows you to, you know, uh, make high level inferences. But if it's augmented, you can make better inferences, can help you think, can help you reason as to what, what is going on in your physical reality. In a virtual reality setting, your physical reality is actually swept away. There's no physical reality there. Mm -hmm. Augmented reality is almost the opposite. It's an attempt to bring more uh, perceptual salience to certain things in your uh, actual uh, surroundings that you're sensing and uh, to do some of the cognitive processing of those things uh, to expedite how you're able to interact with the world. Awesome. That yeah, maybe that. I'll just, just to add to that word, you probably heard the term immersion a lot. And at least the, the way I think about immersion is you have five senses how much of the five senses can you replace? And the more that you can replace, the more immersed you're going to be, right? And if you think yeah. about the goggles that we put on, right, which are the virtual reality, you're kind of taking away sight and replacing it with completely something virtual. So that's 100%. So that's 20% of your senses. Yeah. And you think about sound, you have noise-canceling headphones, you add that on there, now you replace 40%. And so as you edge towards, I mean, there's smell and taste, which are much harder. There's people in Japan that are actually working on... I was going to say, what are we, what are we trying to tackle next, man? What weird attachment yeah. do I have to buy now? It's crazy. You know, there was, a, there was one of these, um, you know, conferences that I was at in 2013 or something like that. And you kind of move to a certain pixel on the screen and you could smell an orange where there was a visual orange and you could move That's to so the other side you can smell an apple. And uh, they basically had, you know, the essences on the back end and they had a control system that kind of tracked you and told you where exactly your nose was and mixed the flavors such that between those boundaries, you can either smell an apple or an orange. It's kind of wow. wild, right? You, you so can't crazy. think of applications today, but people are thinking about those kind of things.
It's just so funny. For years, like in retail spaces, there's so much psychology about like pumping a specific smell into their into their retail space to provide a certain experience. Uh, I years ago worked for a, a, a major tech retailer, and uh, when the early early days, they they did this. There's like a, some of the old stores still had shelves built in where the smell machine would live and would pump the official fragrance in. And so whenever we talk about like creating, uh, you know, the the replicating smell in VR, I just I just don't know how we'll ever cross that bridge without like a, a bunch of like ink tank like smell cartridges that yeah. then have to you know what i mean like there's obviously somebody's trying to crack that egg and uh yeah. i'm making a podcast i'm not going to do it but i'm just saying like it's it's a wild thought um all right i wanted to talk we're talking about the human and ai hybrid approach here we're talking about augmenting abilities uh, so it, it, it segues very nicely into the simulation specialists at Mersion. Uh, who who are using a lot of tools at once to drive these experiences. And, and so the, the question I was really curious about is that looking at some of your specialists, almost all of them, if not all of them, keep me honest, Arjun, had a, uh, a background in the performing arts. They were either an actor or a performer in some regard. And so I was wondering, was it obvious from day one that your sim specialists needed to have a performance background or was that a skill set uh, that you decided to leverage as you went on throughout the process? Like, oh, it'd be really helpful if this person was an actor. Yeah, I mean it's a really interesting question. I um I I actually think we're still trying to figure out the answer, you know. And uh, but uh, I'll tell you why in a minute. Um so obviously over the course of, you know, 6 or 7 years there's technological barriers that we've overcome that allow, yeah. you know, pretty much anyone to go in and inhabit an avatar and appear real because again, it's the AI handling a lot of that load. Um, but at the same time, um, you know, back in the day when we were working at the university, um, a lot of the kinds of scenarios we would create in the virtual reality simulations required an acting background, particularly because we were dealing with, you know, multiple avatars in a virtual classroom, all controlled by a single person. And, uh, we didn't have technology back then to you know, allow them to seamlessly play different kids, like different ages, mm -hmm. and they had to modulate their voices. And, you know, and, and today technology has taken a lot of that stuff over because, you know, you can morph somebody's voice to sound like a different person. And, um, and in addition, there's just the cognitive load of needing to play multiple roles is something that people with an acting background find relatively easier than others. And the so flip cool. side of this is that, you know, the, the the power of the platform comes from the idea that a subject matter expert is somebody that can really push the buttons of somebody wanting to learn, right? And you can take the example of, you know, if we wanted to apply this technology to teach kids that had autism social skills. Mm -hmm. Now, what uh, a, an expert in the uh, field of autism would know is how do I safely interact with that kid in a way that teaches them social skills, but doesn't do them harm, right? And that's right. something that you have to train for. Uh, and that's much harder to train for if you don't have a background in that area than it is to train you to inhabit an avatar, because now the technology of, has the affordance that allows you to be that avatar. Yeah. And so, you know, we've even imagined a world someday, which we've not tested, but these are just, you know, and when I say we, like, uh, again, off the record, it's things that I think about we can do is mm -hmm. you always had a favorite teacher in school and 
you always hated one of your teachers and you probably hated that subject, but you always had a favorite superhero. Now, if that teacher could manifest as a superhero, are you more likely to learn that subject? And we can do that today. You know, Superman or Spider-Man teaching me math with their web slinging is probably much more attractive than my math teacher. Right. Yeah. And so it's just things like that, that, you know, they're, they're kind of wild, you know, applications and they're not tested, but the technology affordances allow us to do that today. And it, it's something that we want to study as researchers. For sure. Well, it's such a cool idea. You know, do you really, you're extrapolating this thing that you know, I grew up when I was a kid, I remember the GI Joe PSAs and like they would come on and tell you like how to, I don't know, prevent a forest fire. Maybe that was Smokey the Bear. Obviously they weren't that effective. I can't recall any of them specifically, but the point is like your favorite character was trying to teach you something and yeah. to think of like uh, the ability to now map that onto uh, a teacher or something in school. Uh, it's just, it's a, it's a really cool thing fascinating idea um that again blows my mind uh funny little bit real quick for those listening at home if you go to immersion's website and check out the team photos uh everyone looks great for the record i'm not saying nobody everybody looks fantastic but here's a fun game for our listeners don't read what anyone does and see if you could spot all the sim specialists based on who has proper headshots because <laughs> i was going through and i was like oh that's a sim specialist yep got it okay yep oh dynamic lighting sim specialist yep got it uh it was pretty funny um but anyway okay just go a little bit deeper without pulling the curtain too far back one and you kind of touched a little bit on this uh in terms of uh adapting your approach and your speech to to uh work with a, a child with autism but uh and maybe the answer is just the right actors and the right person for the job but one of the things i'm super curious about you talk about controlling multiple avatars simultaneously and those avatars can look like uh, anybody they can be anybody and so uh to, to paraphrase some copy from Mersion's website if you have say a a young white female identifying sim specialist leading a simulation how do you make sure the choices they make as a performer with the avatars are true to the experience of each represented culture race, sexual orientation, gender identity, et cetera. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. No. And, um, and it's a, it's, this is a question that, you know, we think about all the time and, you know, we spend a lot of time trying to figure this out, but, mm -hmm. you know, our stance at least, um, over or things that we've learned over the last few years is that what matters the most is the learning experience for the person on the other side. Yeah. Right. Um, we want to be careful to not shift the focus on what does it take to play the avatar because that's not what the platform's intended to do. What the platform's intended to do is help the learners on the other end get the best possible experiential learning that they can. Now, what we do is we have a very rigorous training and calibration process that you know helps these people do their jobs and their roles, and you know in, in the same way that you couldn't let anyone off the street go fly a plane, there's people that get certified to be pilots in our system, right? And of course, more and more, we're trying to make it easier for people to become the pilots. And um, what we, we focus on is making sure that those guardrails that we establish do not cause any sort of negative impact for the person that's going through, you know, the learning mm -hmm. simulation. So things like, you know, is People ask us this question, like, how are you going to eliminate or mitigate the bias? And I think my answer personally is that you can't mitigate bias. Like, bias mm -hmm. exists. The first mm -hmm. thing that you've all got to recognize is that no matter what you try, I'm going to bring biases into the system. Right. And the real question is, 
how does that bias impact the learning experience? And did you design the learning experience in a way that bias is the biggest component or is the learning experience about something where you don't want bias to play a role? And so there's a lot of thought and there's a fantastic learning and design team at Immersion that actually thinks about these questions every single day while they're designing yeah. the experiences. And they sit down with the clients and actually you know, design the experiences with them so that we're actually targeting the learning experience rather than worrying about how somebody manifests. So it, just to extend you know, uh, uh, your line of thinking, if you wanted to play a four-year-old kid, like there's no way you're going to bring a four-year-old kid into version and say, go play a four-year-old kid. It makes <laughs> no. no sense. No, and it doesn't work. In the same way, like want to, you have a neurologically diverse kid in there and you don't want to go get a neurological diverse kid to go play a neurological diverse kid. There's no learning. There's also like so much more harm to the person. And yeah. you extend that again and like, you know, you extend that to race and ethnicity and say, oh, go play that Indian guy that grew up in Bangalore when he was 20 years old. And I'm like, hell no, I hated that life. <laughs> I don't want that. That's not, yeah. right? That's I'm not the target of this experience. The target of the experience is the person that's going to the simulation on the other side and us being able to say, are you able to solve your learning challenge in the yeah. presence of bias? And we do that with multi-exemplar training. It's not one thing, right? We, we have people go to lots and lots of simulations each time there's a different person like uh, i'll ask you this question right if you drive in a car um that you hired by a uber and the guy was erratic does that mean you're never getting into another uber again that's you know we do that every day in every life right like and in everyday life and so it's the same thing the more that you drive the more confidence you have in these things and and at the end of the day you get better right and and that's kind of what we're trying to go for for sure. Uh, yeah. And it's, uh, it's fascinating to hear. I was just sort of thinking of it in myself and where the ca- questions kind of came from, which is like, I, I was, I had the wrong comparison at first. Cause I was just thinking about the entertainment industry. And I look at just like how we've gone from breakfast at Tiffany's in the sixties and the less said about that performance, the better, but everyone knows what I'm talking about uh, to like now representation is important. Like even to animation, we want to make sure a black character is voiced by a black actor. And I was like, okay, so this is a slippery slope but it's like well no the context is important because they're they're trying to communicate and tell their story and tell a story specific to their experience and their culture whereas here you're right it's it's about the the, the trainee the person who's learning through this experience and so it, it's a different it's a different vehicle it's a different uh, medium it's a different story entirely and and uh you you were obviously way more articulate and succinct in explaining it but uh i arrived there somewhat uh in a similar place so I wanted to hear what you thought. Alan, um, let's let's go a little bit deeper here. In a training situation, you want to be able to provide feedback. You want to guide someone towards progress. A facilitator has to be tuned in to the trainee's responses and behavior. There's, there's no one-size-fits-all solution here that I can think of. So to what extent do different people express emotions in different ways? And, and, and can AI assist in, in translating these expressions across different people? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, you see across cultures, there are differences in how people express emotion. Um, in East Asian cultures, uh, people don't express many high arousal emotions. It's not as culturally, it's not a cultural norm. Um, so generally, you'll conceal it if you're laughing. Sometimes, I mean, it's, I'm not going to too broadly generalize, but uh, there is that trend. Um, and it's significant enough that in our data, we see, uh, you know, half as much facial movement in East Asian cultures in response to evocative videos and social interactions 
versus in Western cultures overall. Um, and so that's a huge difference. But people understand the same facial expressions, right? People are able to see the facial expression and know what it means. You can normalize across cultures. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it was really fascinating, actually, about... I, I don't know if uh, the audience... I've seen it yet, but we have um, Arjun's sort of avatar uh, or uh, Mersion's avatar playing uh, simultaneously. Um, and actually, I was going to bring this up, but it just turned off. <laughs> so I don't know if this is the best time. I can see it on my side. And, you can still uh, see it? Okay. I can still <laughs> see it. And I was. And even if we don't bring it up right now, we can do what's called a tease and we'll bring okay. it up later. And also, too, <laughs> incidentally, when we do bring it up, Arjun, just a heads up, there appears to be a mouse cursor right over his shirt. Yes, uh, that's and true. So, I was going to say that as well. It's gone. He's gone. <laughs> awesome. Okay. Right. So uh, for those listening, I haven't introduced it into the video feed yet. Don't worry, you haven't missed it. But uh, but when we do, I'll let you know, and and you're going to want to definitely check out the videos to see it because it is pretty wild. But Alan, not to derail you too much, what were you saying? So what I was going to say about that is that uh, what's what's brilliant about this simulation is that you know at the same time you probably don't want to be talking to a real person in these training contexts because then there's a real person there and they have the presence of a person. You're being judged by a person. This makes you feel it's like it's a playground, but this avatar is actually incredibly good at listening. <laughs> it maintains all of the listening gestures, right? Sort of the head nods and the looks of confusion and kind of very like subtle eye twitches um, that people use to express interest and uh, maybe a little bit of doubt or confusion just at the right times and really brings you in. Um, and I think that really embodies sort of uh, how people engage uh, with uh, each other and, and with empathy in very subtle ways that, you know, um, might otherwise be lost. Um, and, and, you know, I, this is brilliant because like, if you, if you were, if you want to turn your like, video off in, in a video conference, you could use this, right? Like if this could be talking for you. And, have, yeah. and what's even better is that, and, and maybe this is the pros and cons of this, but if you want, it can pretend it's listening. You might not actually be listening. <laughs> well, I've mastered that. <laughs> yeah. I do on a daily basis now. I'm like sipping coffee. And <laughs> Really engaged because of the avatar. No. It's so funny, <laughs> um, Alan. I don't want to cut you off, but I do because we're getting into a, a bit of territory. This was going to be my follow-up Arjun, because you're right. We've scratched the surface of this before. I think it was with Greg uh, Greg Cross when we were talking about in episode two the ways in which people felt more comfortable interacting with the digital avatar, right? And uh, and you've talked a little bit about uh, just now why why you think that is, and I'd love Arjun to talk about. Uh, uh, why he thinks it is that that people are are more comfortable interacting with a digital avatar, especially because there seems to be this sweet spot where you want to make the avatar, like you were saying, Alan, uh, uh, responsive and in, in, in more lifelike and have all the little facial tics and things like that. But there is still something about the avatar that that makes it easier for me to talk to, more receptive to the training. And I just would love to know, uh, Arjun, why do you think that is? Why? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is like actually stuff that has been studied uh, by researchers for a couple of decades now. And like Jeremy Balenson, who's a really, really good friend of mine, is one of the pioneers in this field. Um, and even back in the day when we didn't have the technology to create the kind of fidelity that we need um, with the avatars, you know, research studies found that people were more willing to disclose things that they wouldn't to a real human to an avatar. And there's something fascinating about the psychology of the way we think. Like, we think it's a computer and, like, you know, when you have a computer and the computer is presenting a problem to you, your first instinct is, I want to try to beat this. And um, the fact that there's no human on the other side 
um, or at least no apparent human on the other side, kind of makes you realize that you're not going to get judged. It's a safe space. And if it's a safe space, I can commit errors and I can commit mistakes. Mm. And if you can commit mistakes, it's the best form of learning because we're as humans, like I should speak for myself here is like, I do not want to believe the person that says something's impossible. I want to go do it myself, fail, and then say, oh crap, you were right. (laughs) And, um, you know, this is giving you that space where you can safely go in hardest of conversations you wouldn't know how to approach and you can approach that conversation and there's enough stimulus properties in the technology right now to make this feel like a very real interaction and it's all the things that alan pointed out which is we've gone to great lengths to design the ai now where you know there's those subtle movements there's those eyebrow raises there's the saccades in the eyes that are kind of looking around and our goal is that when somebody interacts with these avatars they so it starts to feel real. And then there's the digital component of this, which makes them feel vulnerable. And the minute you're vulnerable, you're in there actually learning. And it's almost, you know, the best form of learning because you're getting immediate feedback. You're trying to shape your own behavior in response to the avatar's actions because clearly you can annoy the avatar. <laughs> and when you annoy the avatar, you're like, oops, I should not have done that. Like, let's go back and correct it. And next time this happens in real life, this is going back to the thing I was saying back in the day. It's in your memory box. It's one of those things that you retrieve at a time when you're having a difficult conversation saying, oh man, when I was talking to the avatar, something similar happened. I better not push this guy's buttons in real life. And it's giving you that visual component that even if you were on the phone, you're almost now able to visualize what the other person on the other end sounds like, which we all do every day. And um, it's just that the holistic component of, you know, the idea that, humans are somehow more comfortable with digital characters and the idea that it's a safe space and the fact that that platform can give you so much measurement, right? Which is really hard to do if you were interacting with a person in real life, you have no measure of how you're doing. And there's no audio recording. There's no camera that's telling you, you kind of twitched when that guy did this. There's no poker face. But here, because you're interacting with a digital character, we're actually capturing all those signals. And it's all of the technology that like Alan and the team are working on human AI, which is, you know, you look at the facial expressions, you kind of look at how those facial expressions created a signature for you over the interaction. You can kind of look at those signatures of different people interacting with the avatars and you can almost cluster people saying, hey, there's a group of like-minded people here. And that's just from the data. And when you present that data back to me, and you show me, here's a period where you had a really negative impact on the avatar. You kind of look at that and go, oh my God, was I actually doing that? I did not realize this. Over time, you kind of like get better, right? Which is this whole concept of social effectiveness, which is you have to adjust your behavior in a manner that's not rule governed. Mm-hmm. In the sense that every time you speak to different people, you manifest or you pull things from your repertoire that are taking that conversation in the right direction as opposed to being rule governed where you say smile at the person you know the comcast guy wishes me a good morning no matter how bad my internet connection is and uh, every comcast representative understands that i understand exactly how you're feeling right now no you don't you have no idea what's going on right (laughs) and that's a canned response from customer service that you don't want that's amazing. The other, the other thing I kind of want from this is that I've now presented 
at several conferences where I'm giving a talk and you know maybe there's like 100 people in the audience, 200 people. Humble brag. We get it, Alan. You're popular. <laughs> but okay. I, don't see, I don't see anyone. I, I might as well be talking to nobody, right? And talking to nobody is actually really difficult. Like there's nobody mm. acknowledging what you're saying. There's just something missing biologically. It makes it very unnatural feeling. You kind of sometimes, sometimes there is somebody who has their camera like on by default, and they're making an active listening, like uh, not like they're really following intently. And yes, like like that, you can also listen to my conference. But that would actually be a solution too. But I'll show up. Yeah. But I'm like, God bless that person because this makes me feel so much more natural and encouraged to like go through my talk with enthusiasm. Because otherwise, yeah. it would just be somebody there who like doesn't know they're actually being seen, um, who's like not paying any attention at all, and kind of has this weird. Um, subconscious effect on you. But you know, this avatar would be perfect to have too because it just has all the perfectly timed listening cues that you kind of need. Uh, it, it's um, it's amazing, and and um, you know, I, I said I would announce it, but for those listening, I, I I will have at this point cut it in for Arjun's response, and I will bring I'll be bringing it up further throughout this episode as we move forward. So uh, go go and check out the video if you haven't. It, it, it's really it, it's it's pretty amazing, Alan. You were you were just talking about uh, the significance of of getting that visual feedback when giving a talk and how important it is to see someone actively listening, and then I was uh, uh, pantomiming and doing that for you. Uh, it, it is. It's amazing to see those little motions replicated and recreated with, with the avatar, which again, if you're listening now, we will have at this point, we're going to start, we're just about to start to cut it in. You'll see it once Arjun starts speaking. Um, Arjun, one of the things I've, I've asked uh, on the show before, whenever we drift into this territory is, was there a sweet spot? Or are you guys still dealing with the sweet spot of making it uh, lifelike and responsive enough without uh, drifting into uncanny valley creepiness territory? Like there's a tightrope to, 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 to walk down there. And I'm just curious of your personal experience in navigating that. Yeah, and um, I think this is again one of those things that we've you know experimented with with mm -hmm. um, over almost a decade now. And um, this concept of the uncanny valley—I mean, it was by Mori back in the '70s. But mm -hmm. you know, while it exists theoretically, there's actually no experimental evidence that the uncanny valley exists. It can't be recreated, which means that you know every person has their own uncanny valley. Mm -hmm. um, there's different you know, on a, on a big spectrum, if you ask people to draw where that threshold of that dip is, where they're starting to feel creepy, different people will draw that in different places because of their own experiences, their own biases, the kinds of things they've seen and so on and so forth. So actually there's no experimental evidence, but having said that, I mean, the biggest thing for us is again, going back to this idea that, you know, we create immersion or situational plausibility and place illusion are kind of like the two concepts that we really try mm -hmm. to reinforce. And the, the, the situational plausibility is this idea that is this likely to occur in my world, right? And so if you break any one of those two constructs, um, they were defined by Melis later back in the day, um, you start to lose this um, immersion in the actual experience itself. Hmm. And there are several factors that can change or affect that experience. So in technological terms, things like, you know, tracking or things like those freezes that we often see in, you know, Wi-Fi connections, which is, you know, like if I were interacting with this person in real life and it, he's not going to freeze. And hmm. if he freezes, it kind of like destroys this, you know, is this real? Um, and so the technology affordances play a big part. And then, of course, there's this context setting, which is, you know, if you walk into a, um, 
really big location where you're expecting a certain ambience and a certain aura and you recreate that same experience in a different ambience and a different aura, it breaks illusion. Yeah. Uh, and as you know, Mel used to say back in the day, a fight like this would never happen in a bar like that, right? Which is you know, <laughs> one of his fam- famous things that he quotes. And uh, um, so back to your original question of where are we on the spectrum? I mean, we push for realism. We want this to feel as authentic. And we capture that not just from appearance, because it's one thing capturing static appearance, which is these photoreal renders that you actually yeah. see with metahumans and all of the other stuff. And it's another thing when you actually try to bring them to life, which is what we're doing. And we're trying to bring them to life in real time, as you can see right now, where um, the artificial intelligence is listening to my audio, looking for different patterns in the data, somehow learning what kind of body language and facial expressions to exhibit, um, You know, listening to things like the tone and pitch of my voice to shape the lips based on how the lips are being shaped, deciding how the face needs to get shaped. It's a lot of computation going on. And for us to achieve that in, you know, less than 33 milliseconds is, is hard. And um, we're doing this in real time. And so it's wild. Uh, for us is when you're interacting with this avatar, are we preserving those two concepts? And the minute yeah. the answer to that is yes, you're preserving it, then we're good. You know, we're, yeah. we're not in that uncanny valley. And people will um, very, there, there's the occasional time when somebody says an avatar is creepy, but I almost have not heard that in the recent past as we've seen technological advancement help improve the fidelity of the avatars. I mean, like we've been talking, you know, with this avatar on for about an hour now. And um, I actually, it's a question for any of you if you feel anything that that avatar is doing right now is creepy or looks odd or not. <laughs> And you kind of get used to it, right? It's, it's that initial reaction of what is this thing? And then you kind of are, in some ways, like you calibrate. Yeah. Yeah, for and sure. No, I, and honestly, I haven't once uh, felt creeped out or, or that it was weird. Uh, there was, a, like you said, a couple of seconds of calibration. of just like, oh, I'm not accustomed to seeing uh, that. And then it was like, oh, yeah, it's just another person on the chat. He's in my peripheral vision. I look over. He's there. It's, it's really fascinating the way your, your brain adjusts to it uh, so quickly. Um, yeah. I mean, and then think, think of this from an evolutionary standpoint, right? We've seen humans and billions of humans, and we see <laughs> millions and millions of people. Your brain calibrates from when you're a baby. And how many avatars have we ever seen? Yeah, like 10, 15, 20, and like we're like you talk about infancy. I mean, <laughs> this is kind of like pre infancy, right? And yeah. <laughs> over the years, this will become the norm, you know, like people in digital environments will need to use avatars to interact with others. And, yeah. uh, and, and our job as researchers and technologists is to provide them with the best kinds of systems that will allow them to do the functions that they're required to do yeah. in their digital environments. Alan, you started to kind of touch on this a little bit, um, you know, just kind of looking down the road and sort of the the implications of this technology moving forward, just at a societal level. You know, I, I was talking to you earlier and you were telling me about how people tend to naturally gravitate towards other similar looking and culturally similar people. It's just how we're programmed is what we do. Do you think like AR and the metaverse and stuff like this can function as a platform where people will be able to uh, more easily form connections across demographics and across cultures outside of their comfort zones and and, and bridge more gaps than we than we are today? Yeah, I mean, 100%. And you can imagine you, there's the translation issue. Translation only gets you so far, right? You can know literally what somebody's saying. 
you need to be able to also translate their prosody. You want to be able to translate their facial expression. And there's all these subtle gestures people do where, you know, it literally is very difficult for somebody in, you know, maybe uh, uh, South America to do business with somebody in Japan um, because there are cultural barriers that go beyond just translation. Yeah. Um, you know, even, you know, when it comes to, email, but let alone like where you have a lot of time to think about it. Um, but then when you're, when you're speaking in person, it's like really, it's really clear that there are these barriers. Um, you want, it's, it's sort of unclear like when somebody, um, it's okay to interrupt somebody, for example, um, or, uh, or are they being polite? What, what is this? What are the norms of etiquette um, around emotional expressions? Because that's really where, where there are a lot of cultural differences. People sort of get the meaning of the emotional expression, but um, sort of laughing out loud has a different uh, sort of etiquette around it uh, in different countries. Uh, and, and so what if you could just surpass all of that and have the avatar act perfectly appropriately to you to you when, it's, when you're looking at somebody else's avatar and your avatar looks per- as acting perfectly appropriately to them, take that completely out of the equation. Now suddenly it's easy to do business uh, between South America, you know, Brazil and Japan and the US and Japan. I, I just, the, the possibilities are limitless if you can establish all of the nonverbal components of empathy between people in those cultures. What do you guys think about, and this one I struggle with, because on the one hand, I'm like, oh, this would be great, but also, okay, so let me just get my all my thoughts out, and then we'll uh, put them together into a cohesive sentence. So, uh, thinking about just sort of the biases and, and the uh, systemic racism that a lot of people, uh, you know, it's 2022, and I'm still seeing headlines, uh, the, there's a black family that had their white friend show off their home on their behalf, and like, boom, it was appraised by like almost $100,000 more. Uh, how many stories have we heard a person of color gets endless job rejections, but then uh, all of a sudden they lie about the color of their skin, bam, they get an interview. It, you know, it's disgusting. It happens all the time. And so my first thought was, oh, we could uh, create a system where maybe like for job interviews, like a more fair system where you disguise someone's like identity related attributes, but preserve or, or even augment their expressive behaviors. And I was like, that's a neat idea. But then you're also just kind of masking the problem. So I was like, what about using this to to teach people with uh, with those biases, biases or or uh, racist tendencies to to see past that, and I know that's a big challenge because they got to want to learn. Uh, but so I'm throwing a lot out there at the board to see what sticks. But just in general, I, I felt like this could be such a powerful machine for us as a society moving forward. And I was just curious, any thoughts you have floating around there that can make it sound like I had a cohesive idea? Yeah, I mean, um, Alan, why don't you go and I I, I kind of. Uh... I mean, this is the thing that keeps me up at night. So, yeah. <laughs> what do you think, Alan? Yeah, I mean, definitely. When you think about um, things like uh, local accents or something where it can signal class, that's where there's a huge amount of bias still in this country. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously racial bias. Um, and just being able to, um, like you said, you don't necessarily want to remove it from the equation during the job interview, but having people tested on the degree to which they have that bias so that you know, well, like this interviewer has done a lot of interviews, but we actually tested them and they have this bias. And so now we know that like you scientifically, there's a causal effect that we can take out of, of their subsequent interviews with people. Um, which I think, you know, that could be something that's easy to do with everybody uh, if you have this technology. Um, and so you could you could start to 
not take it out of the interview, but regress it out of the assessment. You know the degree to which bias is affecting the assessment. You can actually regress it out. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's that would be one potential possibility there. Yeah. I like yeah, that. I, met, I mean, I was thinking about this even, you know, uh, back in the day, I, I don't remember when this was, but there was this fascinating BBC video about, you know, are babies born good or evil? Um, I don't know if you've heard this one or watched it, but, you know, there's a group of researchers that kind of studied, um, you know, well, which one of these things are learned and which one of these things are kind of innate, right? And, um, you know, they have all these fascinating things where they use these one cut plays where they have three different puppets and one puppet helps the other one and the other hinders the puppet. And then they give babies, infants, right? Like less than three months old, a choice between them. And, you know, they automatically gravitate towards, you know, the ones that are helpful rather than hindering and so on and so forth. It's really fascinating. And uh, there's people still studying a lot of this stuff, you know, like, Paul Bloom at Yale is um, one of the people that studies, you know, emotional empathy and cognitive empathy and all this other stuff. But it almost seems like positive biases like mm-hmm. that are for us are innate, which means we're kind of like always born being positive towards ourselves. And the definition of us constitutes people that aren't strangers and people with the same likeness and people that we find. And the negative biases for them are almost learned, which also means that if you're learned, you can be unlearned, right? Which is mm. kind of what we play upon, and which is kind of what we're talking about now. I think one of the first things, and, and Alan hit upon this right at the very start of this, which is we do linguistic profiling. And um, that's the time taken for us to say the word hello, for instance, right? Mm. And um, 80% of the employers almost admit that we do discriminate based on accents. And this is like, you know, this is data that's out there. This is research that's out there. And the question for all of us is the the first step in eliminating something is recognizing its existence, right? Mm -hmm. And what the tools, like what we're building now and the stuff that, you know, Hume's building, which allows us or gives us information about ourselves do is, they allow us to measure and provide that information that tells me you have something that you don't recognize. This whole term mm-hmm. called unconscious bias is something that, by definition, it's not something you want to do. It's just there in you. You don't know you have it. And if we can pick the technology and have the technology basically provide the information around, hey, this is something that exists in you. That's your first step, which is recognition. And then you go ahead and design scenarios or design, you know, learning experiences that allow you to mitigate that bias. And over time, you kind of unlearn something that you've learned before. Um, and that, yeah. that's the, the fascination. And that's the thing like, that I think we all are trying to solve is when we say we want a more empathic world, it's a world where we are learning to recognize these differences and still come together as one. Right. And that's what technology is allowing us to do if if applied in the right way. Right. Right. That's beautiful, man. Um, Well, I usually, when we get into the home stretch, I always ask like, you know, what are the things we're really excited about coming, coming down the pipe and all that. But I I feel like we're, we're we're kind of talking about that uh, in a way right now. Uh, So actually what what I think will be fun to do uh, to kind of cap things off uh, Arjun, you had almost mentioned something that's like spot on with this question we received. So, okay. Every week we say to our listeners, send us a question. And and I finally checked before we taped. So I have something that actually really fits in nicely. You, you kind of started to talk about this before. This is from uh, intentionally vague 
And it says, hey, TFL team. So I lead social strategy for a large tech company. In regards to customer care and support, how can you scale support for your customers so they feel heard and taken care of without feeling like they are being handled by a robot? And you, you actually started mentioning this earlier. So I was like, this is great. Let's just, we'll, we'll cap it off with this. And I can actually get a, a fan question in here. So what do you think, man? Yeah, no. And, um, you know, it's a fascinating question. Um, the, the idea that here's where I would start. And it kind of follows up on the thing I was just saying before is recognition. And then of course, like the change, right? I mean, we all know that when we interact with humans, right. And we already are in these situations where we are certainly not happy with the kind of customer service we receive on a number of calls. And I, I, I've had this happen to myself. And, you know, I, there are times that, you know, things like you just mentioned happen, which is I have an odd accent, obviously, because I'm not from here. And then I get on the phone, the problem is still a problem. And then my wife, who's from California, gets on the phone and all of a sudden the problem is solved. And um, it's, when we as humans in the customer support line can't solve for that problem, expecting you know AI and algorithms to solve that problem for us is a stretch. And the way I want to think about this, and Alan can speak much more to this than I can, is that first we have to get enough data that tells us that you know, go get away from that rule governed behavior, right? Like when somebody calls you, don't tell them you understand them and that you can certainly help them with their problem. Like try and listen to them, be human, yeah. be empathic. Once you've done that, you have enough data to now train your algorithms around, okay, is this information information that humans are? And if it's informational, then you use the robots in those places to scale. If you realize right at the moment that the person calls that, you know, this is way beyond being informational, this is a stressed out human being and definitely needs a human component to it, you try and put them on the line with another human and some day you, you hope that there's enough of those good interactions and samples that we create of bad interactions, not in real, like not in the real world, but like create synthetic samples of the bad interactions such that someday we can train the AI to have those empathic responses. And then lastly, be transparent about it. Mm -hmm. Don't make the assumption that the person behind the scene knows that they're talking to a robot. Be super clear that, hey, you're about to talk to an empathic AI system and be clear on how you went about creating that empathic AI system, which is really what Hume is doing right now, yeah. right? which is being able to validate why those algorithms are so much better than a whole bunch of other algorithms that have been created because there's no transparency in the process of creation. Uh, but I'll, I'll let you, you know, speak more about this stuff. That, yeah. I mean, you cover a ton of territory there. I would say, like, you know, what is, first of all, what is it that sucks about talking to a service, um, you know, a robot right now? What is it that's, you know, why, why is it that talking to an automated call center agent is just not, not a, is a frustrating experience, let alone not being satisfying. It's because, you know, first of all, it's something that, that doesn't understand what you're feeling. So obviously it doesn't care. Um, and so there's, no, there's nobody on the other line who's going to say, okay, I really do care that you're having a bad experience because even if they did, you wouldn't believe them because it is, it is simply an automated robot thing. Um, <laughs> but, you know, at the very least, you, you know, one of the things that's frustrating is that you know, even if even if you don't care if it cares, you still want to be understood. You still want to communicate what is going on, and for the other thing to understand 
okay, this is a problem. Um, and so a lot of that occurs in your emotional intonation. A lot mm-hmm. of it isn't language. Um, and even if it is, it might be subtle. So, you know, the, the, there's just something completely lacking about its ability to even understand you and keep pace, be more conversational, ask the follow-up questions that a human would ask if it knew you were frustrated, if it would, you know, a human would unpack frustration. Emotion, emotion is begging to be unpacked, right? Um, yeah. That's that's sort of what emotional intonation does, is it makes somebody go, oh, like, I noticed that you're frustrated about this thing. You know, tell me a little bit more about what it is that's causing this. Um, and so you don't need to be incredibly, you know, concrete about what you're saying. Um, and so a lot of it is communicative. And, you know, it, there's an informational component to being understood. And then as, as Arjun said, when it's not informational, when it really does come down to, okay, there's nobody on the other line that cares about me. <laughs> and then, it, then there should be a time when you, when you get transferred to a human. Like, yeah. like it should never be that you're always stuck with this automated agent. Um, it's just, a, you know, it's just not a good experience to have. Um, it can be improved, but, but at a certain point you want somebody to, really understand the heights of your negative experience and maybe do something about it and say like, we can compensate you for that. Yeah. Um, and sometimes that is what you're expecting. And only a human can get to the bottom of whether you're, you know, really having a negative time or you're you know, maybe, maybe you're over exaggerating a little bit. <laughs> you can be frustrated for both parties, but like at least a human should be the one to make that assessment and not an automated agent. Uh, yeah, it's, it's almost wow. there's data, right? The, the the healthcare sector almost has ninety percent of their lawsuits happen because there was no, the the person on the other side didn't listen. It wasn't that a medical procedure went wrong or the bad medi- medication was given. That's actually the <laughs> cause, right? It's because somebody didn't listen. Yeah, <laughs> it's wild. We don't want our problems solved sometimes. Yeah. And, and I mean, talk about, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off, Arjun. Finish. You were no, saying? I was just saying that's what makes us human, right? Ultimately, yeah. that it's that, that's what differentiates us from computers that are so task oriented. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say, oh, yeah, playing off of we all want our problems. I think both of you have solved intentionally vague's problem. That was a fantastic answer <laughs> to anybody else listening. That's what you can expect. Send us a question. We got really smart people here with really great advice uh, and insight. Uh, man. What a bummer that I got to wrap this up. Arjun, it has been so amazing to have you on the show uh, with us today slash tonight, whenever, whoever's listening here. But uh, uh, again, such a treat. Thank you so much for taking time to hang out with us and being so generous with your time. I, I really appreciate it. We all really appreciate it. Uh, and I'm just very excited to have had this time with you. Thank you, man, so much. My pleasure, um, Alan. And Matt, thank you so much for uh, having me on the show. I can't wait to uh, keep chatting with you guys about more stuff. Yeah, for sure, man. The door is always open. We're definitely going to have you back for something else. I'll tell you right now. So keep your calendar open, all right? Uh, Alan, thank you as always, Alan. I wouldn't do this without you, honestly. I appreciate you too, man. Uh, And to those listening and watching uh, and ideally enjoying the show all over the world, I appreciate you too. Uh, I wouldn't show up without Alan, but we'd have no reason to show up together without you. So thank you, uh, listeners and, and viewers out there. Do us a favor and let us know what you think, or even better, how you're feeling. Send us an email over at thefeelingslab at hume.ai, T-H-E-F-E-E-L-I-N-G-S-L-A-B at hume, H-U-M-E dot A-I. Ask a question, suggest a topic, or uh, hey, let me know if you want to hear me grill Alan over his trip to South by Southwest. Whatever it is, send it this way, and I'm sure I'll eventually accidentally delete it, retrieve it, 
read it and then do something about it. So go ahead, send it on over. Uh, anyway, farewell for now from all of us here at the Feelings Lab, my friend. I'm Matt Forte. Thanks again, everybody, and please stay safe out there. <laughs>